0: From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Is success driven more by skill and knowledge or by chance? That's the question journalist and psychologist Maria Konnikova wanted to answer as she struggled to deal with some bad luck in her life. Konnikova decided that one way to learn about the role of chance would be to study poker, a game that relies on some mathematics, but also on luck and nuances of human interaction. So she enlisted the help of a professional poker player and became one herself. Kanakova joins us to talk about her new book, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. Join us after this news. Welcome to this morning's forum. I'm Michael Krasny. After a spate of bad luck led her to question the nature of chance, journalist's Maria Konnikova began learning about poker. Konnikova, who holds a doctorate in psychology, was curious about how the game hones players' ability to distinguish between what is within and outside of our control. And under the tutelage of an expert, she became a professional player and entered the World Series of Poker, a competition with a $10,000 entry fee. The experience shaped her new book, The Biggest Bluff, and Maria Konnikova joins us now to talk about the book, her journey from novice to professional poker player, and what poker can teach us about the role of skill and chance in our lives. And welcome, Maria Konnikova.
1: Thank you so much for having
0: me. Delighted to have you. And let me just, first of all, tell you what a tight, well-honed and compelling narrative you've written here. But it's not only a book about poker, it's a book about life and about psychology and about philosophy and a little full disclosure here. I have played in Vegas tournaments, uh, not in the World Series, it's a little too steep for me. But uh, from the start, I wanted to commend you for capturing the whole kind of sensory assault and nervous energy. And it's really a very fine description of what you experience when you're in that eerie quiet, except for the sound of poker chips, but you began also with your chair being empty. And I wanted to focus on this because something blindsided you and life becomes the metaphor here or poker becomes a metaphor for life because you can be blindsided with bad luck. And in your case, it was uh, going into the restroom and vomiting a great deal.
1: This is true. This is true. Um, And it was not just nervous energy from being at the World Series of Poker for the first time. Um, It was actually a migraine. So I'd Been prepping for this moment forever. Um, Well, not forever, but for for the for the first part of my uh, journey into the world of poker. And I'd done everything right, or or so I thought. I had one of the best coaches in the world, Eric Seidel, by my side. I'd played preparatory tournaments to lead up to this moment. I'd studied hard. I'd worked hard. I left The New Yorker to do this full time and really dedicate myself to it. And of course. As it goes, you know, man plans, God laughs. So you can, you can do all of the planning that you possibly want and then something like a migraine can come along and completely derail you. And yes, that is how I found myself on the floor of a bathroom in the Rio Hotel and Casino. And that is not an experience I would recommend to anyone.
0: No, it sounds like an experience that you would not want to recommend, and I would certainly not want to experience personally. But you also learned a good deal from that. Again, it gets us into the whole question of luck and how much we are, by chance and randomness and capriciousness, if you will, destined to be, in many ways, well, controlled by luck more than we like to think. That gets you into the heart of your book. And let's talk for a moment about luck, though, because uh, I was struck by the fact that, um, in many instances, um you, of course, you can't predict luck, but it begins, as I think you point out, uh, in the womb or in the zygote, in uh, sperm and egg. It begins with the kind of random, capricious nature of our genetics.
1: Absolutely. I mean, it begins with something that some people, some writers, some philosophers have referred to as the ovarian lottery. So, are we even born at all? I mean, that's that's factor one. And as Richard Dawkins once pointed out, and beautiful passage that I quote in the book most people are not even born you know there are poets greater than Keats and scientists greater than Newton and we never know that they would have what they would have done because that particular sperm never met that particular egg and that person never was even in existence and after that I mean it's Not It's not anything to do with us. It's nothing to do with our skill, with our work ethic, with anything. Who were you born to? Where were you born? What gender are you? What religion are you? What skin color? All of these things have absolutely zero to do with you. And it's just the absolute lottery of birth. And I think that it's so easy to forget that and to say, oh yes, you know, meritocracy, American dream, all of these wonderful concepts. Well, yes and no. I mean, it's something where we have to acknowledge that luck really rigged the stage to begin with.
0: And you were born in the Soviet Union, and it was lucky, as you have pointed out, that you came here at the age of four. Kakvipaj by the way, I don't (laughs) know. much opportunity to use my russian but i'll uh, abuse it a little bit with you there there is a sense uh for example that you were lucky in that but then suddenly you had a siege of bad luck uh in your life and uh in fact it brings up the whole question of whether luck seems to run in streaks i've always thought that maybe it does but talk about that from your perspective
1: yeah um so i it's funny someone asked me you know what's the luckiest thing that ever happened to you and i I said, other than being born, the fact that my parents decided to leave the Soviet Union because I, as you say, I was born there. And when I was born, it was still the Soviet Union. It wasn't Russia. The Berlin Wall hadn't come down. And I'm Jewish, which is actually quite relevant because there were quotas on what Jews could and couldn't do um, back when the Soviet Union was the Soviet Union. And so my opportunities would have been severely limited. My life would have been totally different. And this is something that my parents did. So for them, it wasn't luck, it was their skill, it was their perseverance, it was their choice, it was their action. But for me, a little four year old, it was absolutely The luckiest thing ever. And so it's funny that some of the luckiest things that have ever happened to me happened many, many years ago. And then there were also a lot of lucky moments that were able to get me to where I am right now. But the thing that precipitated this book that actually precipitated my journey into poker was, as you alluded to, a string of bad luck um, where I had a big health scare, some crazy autoimmune condition that no one could diagnose where i just became allergic to everything and for large stretches of time just couldn't even go outside because my body would just break out in hives and it was incredibly painful and no one could figure out what was going on around the same time my grandmother died in it just freak accident slipped in the middle of the night and i had multiple family members lose their jobs and all of these things started happening within a few months of each other and i just thought wow you really don't acknowledge luck when it's on your side. But now that you have all of this bad luck, it makes it evident how much of your everyday existence, how much of your success, how much of the things that you take for granted or that you think you acquired through hard work were only possible because chance was on your side and it was invisible because it was working for you. And we really start waking up and figuring out, wow, chance is powerful when it goes against us, um, as it did for me. Now, and when chance what-
0: is on our side, we seem to uh, ignore it uh, and it becomes invisible. <laughs> I think as you point out in your book, and yes. uh, this leads us to, well, you're preparing yourself mm-hmm. as a player of texas hold'em no limit texas hold'em which we ought to describe for listeners who are not familiar with the game it's uh, a perfect metaphor in many ways for life because it's no limit it's high risks and high rewards and a lot of it has to do with dumb luck itself Uh, but before we talk about texas hold'em let's talk about You're bringing on Eric Seidel, who is well known to professional poker players and amateurs like me. Um, You were someone who thought there were 54 cards in a deck. You didn't even understand the game. Uh, And so when you decided to become a poker player, you went to a professional who you describe as a poker player who also read The New Yorker. And Seidel is a very... Classy and very fine, uh, extraordinarily gifted poker player and a gifted man in many ways. He taught you a lot. He was the right person for the right time for you. This goes back also to the movie Rounders, doesn't it?
1: It absolutely does, which was, I think, the only time I had ever seen a poker game was in a fiction, in a fictionalized account, was in the movie Rounders, um, which came out in the 90s, and where Eric Seidel actually figures as a recurring character, because the Matt Damon character um, keeps playing the clip from the 1988 World Series of Poker, where Johnny Chan, the master, goes up against the kid, Eric Seidel, and Eric ends up coming in second. But what people don't necessarily realize was that this was Eric Seidel's first ever major poker tournament. First time out of the gate and the guy comes in second in the World Series of Poker. It was the start of an incredible career that's still going on to this day. He is one of the only players who continues performing at the top of the game year in, year out, winning titles, playing against the toughest competition for multiple decades. And I actually think what you started with is a big reason to understanding why, that he's a poker player who also reads The New Yorker, which encapsulates the kind of mind he has. It's a curious mind. It's an insatiable mind. It's a mind that wants to keep learning, that's excited about the world and its possibilities. And that is what Makes him so good at poker because he doesn't think he's the best. He remains humble and he wants to learn. He realizes that the game keeps evolving and he wants to keep evolving with it. And I think that that's a very rare characteristic in any profession that someone is willing to acknowledge that the world keeps changing and that in order to stay competitive, you have to change and keep up and keep evolving and. I think that one of the reasons that we were such a good fit was that he was able to convey to me that poker was really about thinking well. It was about the process. It was about the challenge of the game. It wasn't about winning or losing. It wasn't about making money. It wasn't about the outcome. And so I think that he directed me in a way that not only made me more appreciative of the game but that helped with the entire journey that helped with the life metaphor that helped make me ultimately a better thinker
0: he also helped you win about three hundred thousand dollars and uh (laughs) this is true actually be invited to davos and there were many important (laughs) lessons that you were able to glean from eric seidel defeat teaches you more than victory being perhaps one of the most important ones but also the less uh certainty, the more inquiry. Uh, but yes. I wanted also, before we talk about Texas Hold'em specifically, I want to also talk about another major mentor in your life uh, and in what essentially shaped this destiny for you. And that's the father of game theory, Johann von Neumann, who actually had a lot to do with the computer as well as the H-bomb. Um, by the way there's no h in the russian alphabet they used to say so they couldn't have an h-bomb but it's not (laughs) the h is the letter n in in russian uh you got a good deal from reading von neumann who uh actually was himself though a very bad poker player was inspired by poker and saw really skill and chance in the balance as being emblematic of what poker is
1: Yes, von Neumann is actually the reason I got into poker to begin with. Because someone told me that if I'm interested in chance, I should really read game theory. And so I always whenever I'm learning about anything new, I like to go to the source, because I like to see where the theories came from, I like to see, you know, at the root, what is it really about. And so I decided, well, okay, if I'm going to read about game theory, I'm going to look at the foundational text, the theory of games and economic behavior. And I learned that yes, not only was von Neumann a poker player, I'd learn later on in biographical accounts that he was a pretty bad poker player. I'm actually still not sure if he really was or if he just wanted to have fun and wanted to perplex people and so just wasn't taking it seriously. So who knows, but he wasn't a winning player, that's for sure. But I learned that game theory was based on poker. That when von Neumann looked at all of these different games, he was actually someone who is similar to me in that he didn't like games, and he actually thought that games like Go and like chess were pretty boring um, because they were solvable. They were games of complete information, and he said, "Yeah, you know, it's great, teaches you mathematical stuff, but it's funny that someone who was such a brilliant mathematician said math is not enough." and yeah, that's great Um, and it's good for what it is, but give me enough computing power and I'll solve it. And of course, both of those games have indeed been solved with enough computing power, but poker was a game that was much more similar to real life, specifically No Limit Texas Hold'em, which is the game that he played and the game that I would eventually play. And the reason for that was that poker was a game of incomplete information, just like life. So unlike chess, where you see the board, you see all the pieces, and there's always theoretically a right move. Well, that never happens in real life. You never see the full board. You never see all the possibilities because there are people involved. And as von Neumann put it, real life consists of bluffing, of little tactics of deception, of figuring out what does that man think I mean to do? And that is what games are about in my theory. And that just, that really appealed to me. I thought, wow, this is fascinating because that is life. Life is a game where there are things I know, there are things you know, there are things we both know, and all of us have to make the best decision we can with the information we have at the moment, knowing that we don't know everything, knowing that the environment can change, knowing that there's uncertainty involved, that we live in a world of probabilities where there's no such thing as complete certainty. And so that is what drew me to poker von Neumann's description and the fact that he thought that poker held the key to the most complex strategic decisions in life. You mentioned the hydrogen bomb. Well, von Neumann actually thought that solving poker or finding a way to approach poker, because by the way, No Limit Texas Hold'em has still not been solved, that it would help prevent nuclear war.
0: We're talking, if you just joined us with Maria Konakova. she's a journalist, a professional poker player, and the author of The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, master myself and win, and let's talk about Texas Hold'em. I mean, it's a game that um, you don't necessarily have to be a poker player to understand, and when you're talking about the exciting nature of uh, a game like that, where you get instant feedback as opposed to life itself, uh, it also can be boring. You know, I can remember too many long periods of time uh, just waiting for decent cards. Uh, It can be tedious, but it's also, in in many respects, uh, as you point out in the book, a, a game that's predominantly... Well, overrun by men to some extent. I mean, you, uh, I know women poker players, but there are few of them compared to the number of men. It's disproportionately men. And you have to wonder why that testosterone-driven nature of the game is so male-dominated. But an important lesson that you point out is you learned how to use your gender, too. And I want to talk about Texas Hold'em specifically, but talk about that first, if you would, and just being a woman in a world that is pretty dominated by men.
1: Absolutely. Um, And for those people who don't know the numbers of poker, um, when you say dominated by men, you mean dominated by men. Poker is 97% male and 3% female. I mean, just think about that for a second. What other profession is that heavily male dominated? So obviously we live in a male dominated society and we have for hundreds of years. And I thought that I was someone who could work well in that environment who was a strong female who kind of knew knew what to do knew how to get ahead when you're put in a world that is so incredibly testosterone filled that is so heavily male dominated where you can go for days and days and days and not see another female well you realize just what it means to be in a male dominated environment and At the beginning, I actually let it get to me. I realized that I'd internalized a lot of gender stereotypes that society imposes on you. You know, I wanted people to like me. I wasn't aggressive enough. I found it difficult to be aggressive because it was counter to my personality. It was counter to what I'd been taught to do. I didn't want people to dislike me. And it was making me, it was compromising the quality of my decisions. I wasn't actually acting logically. I wasn't thinking soundly. I was being motivated by emotions, by feelings of insecurity, by feelings of being bullied. And this was a hard realization for me to embrace because it made me realize some things about myself that I didn't want to be true. That's not the way I wanted to see myself. But as you actually said at the beginning, poker is a game of immediate feedback. And so you see what those types of compromised decisions do and you see it in your bottom line so you start losing money and so if you don't actually confront this and fix it you're going to bleed cash and you're going to go broke and you're not going to be able to play anymore and so that's a very powerful incentive to actually confront to be objective and to learn so that's what I had to do and once I was able to confront these things I realized that what I had seen as a disadvantage could actually be used in my favor, because it is so wonderful to be underestimated. If people were underestimating me, underestimating what I was capable of, underestimating what I was capable of executing, then all of a sudden, I had this entire world of opportunities where I could do things that other people, men, couldn't get away with, just because no one thought that, I was capable of doing it. And so when I realized that my gender could actually be an asset, I started turning the dynamic on its head. And that's when I actually started winning and making money.
0: Again, we're talking to Maria Konakova and her book is called The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself and Win. And you learn certainly from this book uh, that good hands in life, uh, whatever you're dealt, often lose and bad hands often win. and. Uh, Maybe the best hands only win about 12%. We get into that whole mathematical realm of poker. But I wanted to get into just why Texas Hold'em, particularly because it is a very singular game, distinctive game of poker, has so many uh, analogies and parallels, uh, as you see it, to life itself. And let's talk about it in, in terms of how the game is played, and let's, of course, talk about the river, because the river is key. (laughs)
1: so I think that there are a few elements here so the reason why von Neumann chose no limit holdem as opposed to any other variant was the exact balance of the knowns to the unknowns so in some variants of poker um there are so many unknown cards cards that are face down that only one player sees that it becomes too much chance because there's just too much information that you are unable to see and that you have to guess at. In other variants, there's too little. You just have one whole card. So there's one unknown and it becomes far too mathematical and so far more similar to something like chess. But no limit hold'em, every single player is dealt two cards face down. So that's your private information. That's what only you know. And when he did all of these computations and I'm not a mathematician, I'm certainly no John von Neumann, um, then so I, tr- I trust him, he said that this is actually the perfect balance, the two unknown whole cards, because that gives you enough to go on and yet it's still a challenge. So every player gets those two cards and then you go around the circle in a clockwise direction, turn by turn and you get to decide what you want to do with those cards. We can get into the reasons why you might decide to do certain things, but you can decide, first of all, am I going to play or am I not going to play? That's the first decision. If you're not playing, you fold. But if you're going to play, you can call, which means calling the minimum bet, or you can raise. So you can say, oh, I want to put in more money. And once again, you can do this for many reasons. Maybe you're doing it because you actually have good cards. Maybe you're doing it because you think everyone else at your table is weak and is going to fold to you. Maybe you're just bored and decided that you want to Shake things up a bit. The good player is going to be able to identify all of those motivations in another player in order to take advantage of it. And then, once again, everyone gets to make that decision. And you will then have information in common, the public information. So there'll be community cards that are dealt face up. That's what everyone can see. So if we're talking about life metaphors, that's now the information available to all and hold that thought if you you would maria because we're
0: coming up on a break and i want to also invite our listeners to join us in this conversation you can do that by giving us a call right now at our toll-free number it's 866-733-6786 866-733-6786 if you have questions or comments for our guest maria Konakova, you can also get in touch on twitter and facebook we're at kqed forum or email forum at kqed.org when you're sitting at the table. There'll be time enough to count when the deal is done. You're listening to Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. Our guest is Maria Konnikova. She's a journalist, a professional poker player, and author of a book called The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And it's really a book about life and about chance and about well how skill and agency uh, intersect with or sometimes uh, simply don't intersect with the nature of chance uh, whether it's the stock market or a doctor making a diagnosis or whatever you uh, would like to pinpoint uh, and I'd certainly be interested in hearing from our listeners in terms of how life and chance or the randomness of chance uh, and luck seem to play a role in your life uh, you can also Call in with any questions you might have for Maria Konnikova. And if you're a poker player, what has poker taught you about life? Keep thinking about that line of uh, Stanley Kowalski. He's not a very... Uh, in many ways, a character to empathize with, but in uh, Streetcar Named Desire, when he says, you know what luck is? I pulled an inside straight. That was when he's talking and bragging about a a poker hand he played. You may want to talk about this with us, and you may want to join us. As I said, it's a topic that's highly psychological as well as philosophical, and uh, there's a lot about Immanuel Kant and empirical thinking in Maria's book. Uh, I'd like to hear what some of you, our listeners, are thinking, and give us a call now at our toll-free number. I invite you again to do that. The number to call is... 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum or email us, forum at kqed.org. We hadn't even gotten to the river yet, and I want to go back to you on this bring You were giving us a nice cogent <laughs> explanation of what uh, uh, No Limit Hold'em, Texas Hold'em, is all about. And uh, I think uh, when you were last giving your narrative, uh, you had the cards down and the players playing.
1: Yes, so we all had our whole cards and the dealer now has fanned out the flop, which is the first three community cards, cards that we all see in common. And so now we have more information. So now the value of our private information has changed because the environment has changed and we now have to look at the context. We have to look and see how those three cards interact with the cards that we have. We have to see how other players are reacting to them. How are they reacting when those cards come out? How are they betting? What actions, what information are they giving out? Because that's the way that we will end up making our decisions on what to do. Because now once again, we go around in that same circle and everyone who decided to play beforehand gets to decide again, are they staying in the hand or not? Are they betting? Are they raising? Are they calling? Are they folding? What are they going to do? And then one more card comes out, that's the turn. And once again, the environment has changed because now we have even more information And you go through that exact same process with everyone who's still in the hand. And then the final card comes, which is the river. That's the fifth card. And at that point, that is all the information that you're going to receive in terms of the poker cards. And now you have to look at the people, you have to put together the story, you have to figure out what has changed from the beginning to the middle to the end? How has the story evolved? Does the story make sense? And what do I want my story to be? How do I want to act? What is my decision going to be? There are not going to be any more cards. And so the last person standing is going to win the hand. And if the hand goes to what's called showdown, which means that someone bets and someone calls and there are still multiple people by the river, then the best hand wins. But most hands never go to showdown, which means that one player convinced every single other player at the table to fold their cards. And most times that actually ends up being the player who doesn't hold the best hand, but someone who has made a better hand fold by acting as if They actually held the best hand. And that's where the skill of the game comes in. You can actually win, and you often do win with the worst hand. That's not possible in any other game in a casino. That's not possible in chess. That's not possible in go, Um, but it is possible in poker. And
0: it is possible in life. And what you've described so splendidly here has to do so much with decision-making, with reading other people. There's a lot of talk about tells, but you say watch the hand movements. That's even more important, but it also has to do with focusing and with rationality as well as probability and risk Uh, and again this seems to me to be a very in many ways incisive metaphor for life. Uh, Let me get a caller on here uh, after I read some comments. Um, A listener tweets, um, well here's Rich who says, I don't play poker but every casino game I know has a house advantage or in this case a buy-in fee for the house. Does that shift the odds against the player over time? It seems like if one wins big early in a gambling career, quitting would be wise. Well, I think, uh, Maria, you mentioned Eric Seidel. He's a good example of somebody who continued to play and continue to do well. Uh,
1: yeah, so, so poker is actually the only game in the casino where the house doesn't have an edge. You're not playing against the house. Right. Um, there is something called rake. So every pot is raked if you're playing a cash game, or if you're playing higher stakes, usually there's a certain amount of uh, rake that's taken out um, every half hour or every hour, depending on where you're playing. But you and you have to you do have to pay attention to that because sometimes the rake is very high which makes lower stakes games unbeatable in which case you just should not play that game at that casino but most of the time if you're especially if you're playing a little bit higher stakes or if you're playing tournaments so tournaments have a specified amount of rake. So say you're playing a tournament that's $100, maybe it'll have $5 or $10 out of that buy-in that will go to the casino. The rest will go to the players and will go to the player pool. And so you're playing against each other and assuming that rake is not outrageous, then you're not going to go broke. There's no edge of the house and you should keep playing if you have an edge over the other players. So that becomes your main concern. Do I have an edge in this game? Am I a favorite? Am I a better decision maker? Am I a more skilled player? And that's the question for the ages. That's the question that you need to constantly be asking yourself, whether it's at the poker table or in any life situation. Should I be in this situation? Am I a favorite? Are the odds in my favor or not? And it can be very difficult to make that accurate self-assessment. But in poker, if you don't do it, you're going to go broke. And, and I think as you, you point out. you'll be out of the game.
0: <laughs> yeah, no, excuse me. I was just going to say, as you point out, uh, too many people feel, well, I've invested this much money so far, so I just ought to see how it's going to turn out, even though they're better uh, half inside of them is saying, no, it's time to get out of here. Uh, here's a tweet that I wanted to read from a listener. It says, an index into how much chance rules our life is the extent and ferocity with which Many of the successful find reasons to claim that it doesn't. Gender, race, moral superiority, the market, all are cited as reasons for success, usually by people who don't understand them. I want to bring in uh, Robert Frank's name here, a book uh, that you may be familiar with, Maria, and uh, a Cornell professor who, an economist actually, who we had on forum a few years ago, who wrote a book about luck, and he said that um, it was interesting, people of progressive politics, uh, as opposed to people of more conservative politics, said that Well, luck had a lot to do with their success. He was talking to a lot of successful people, but the people who were much more conservative and I guess you could say libertarian or Republican felt that luck played a much lesser role. I just found that fascinating. And I find fascinating the responses I'm getting here from listeners. This is Jennifer, for example, who who raises a question uh, to you. Maria, she says, I was struck in listening to Maria Konnikova talk about how she benefited from her parents' decision to leave the USSR as luck. I would love her thoughts on privilege as it's being discussed in terms of racial inequality.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that we need to be incredibly aware of privilege. And in the case of my parents' deciding to leave the Soviet Union. I mean, I think I have to be lucky that I have very smart parents, that their genetic endowment is such that they were able to understand how bad it was, that it was unlikely to get better, that there was a lot of anti-Semitism, um, and that the opportunities would be better in elsewhere, and who were willing to take a huge, huge risk. Because the only reason we were able to get out was because we were Jewish. It's probably the only time in history where people have forged passports to say they were Jewish, because Israel said that they they would take Jews. But we had no intention of going to Israel. So we did what a lot of Russian Jews did at the time, um, which was leave we had to leave everything behind we were stripped of our citizenship and we basically had to rely on the kindness of strangers we were we were political refugees we were asylum seekers and we were able to get asylum in the United States and we were able to get a green card and that was insanely lucky Um, so I don't think that came from a position of privilege that they were able to to uh, to leave but I do think that it was luck of the of the genetic endowment that they actually figured out how to do this and were risk-taking enough to do it. A lot of people were scared, scared of the unknown, scared of not knowing you know what was going to happen, scared to lose citizenship and be stateless and have to apply to other people for help. Um, we were also very lucky that we had kind strangers who were willing to t- sponsor us, who were willing to take us in, who were willing To go out on a line for a family that they did not know, and so we were able to come to this country. But I think that this is a huge. I think we just we can't understate how much luck like that, how much privilege, which often comes from luck, luck of birth, um, how much it has to do with where you end up. And yeah, it's it's a huge it's a huge problem, and it's a huge reason why we have these social inequalities and I think that we're seeing a lot of social cracks right now and what we can do once we are in a position to do so is to try to help to try to be the people who in turn, lend a helping hand to other who are open minded, who are willing to help strangers, who are willing to go out on a limb and put ourselves on the line for the lives of others who are not as privileged as we are.
0: That's very nicely put. And I would bring in the name of Henry Jackson here, a former senator from Washington, who had a lot to do with uh, the uh, pressure to get Soviet Jews uh, emigration. Let me get some callers on. And Ray, we begin with you. Good morning. You're on the air. For taking my call. In poker, there is something called a tell, tells, that is very important in playing poker and can be associated with life. My question is there's a hold 'em, small blind, big blind, and your position in betting What analogy do you have to that in life? To so the big blind and the small blind. Yeah, go ahead, Maria. <laughs>
1: Okay, so so I think that those were two unrelated thoughts. So yeah. yes, there are tells in poker. Um, that, that's true. Um, they're actually not what you think they are. And most people who think they have tells on people do not. And most people rely way too much on tells. And I have a huge section of my book about this. Um, just a, a little preview, you should look at hands, not at faces. Most people's faces don't actually give off much information. But in terms of the analogy to small blind and big blind, I don't think we need to get into the details of of poker, but I think the analogies to the power of position are incredibly important. So in poker, the small blind and the big blind are the worst positions you can be in because you are going to be acting first on every single round after the flop. Um, And that's a huge disadvantage. In every single situation in life, information is power, information is key. Information is how you win and how you gain an edge. So you want maximum information. And by having a better position, by having the privilege of acting last and seeing what other people do before you have to act yourself, that puts you in the best position to win and to actually negotiate better, to get a better outcome because you get to see how everyone else is acting and you get to react to that. You also have time to think. So in poker, position is key. And the good players know that you want to absolutely absolutely minimize the times where you're forced to play out of position. So the blinds are terrible positions. If If you can avoid being in the blinds, that's wonderful, but you can't. It's something that everyone is forced to do. So the analogy there is that sometimes even though you want to be in position, you're going to be forced to play out of position. So you better learn how to do that well so that you're not exploited and taken advantage of by people who have the higher ground, the proverbial higher ground, which we know from the military is always what you should be seeking.
0: And we bring another caller on, and that's Donald. Donald, welcome. You're on forum. Good morning. Hey, yeah. Thank you for taking my question. Um, I was just wondering if you know, kind of coming to these understandings about luck and how the game of life is played, has affected your overall sense of happiness and well-being. And uh, I'll take my answer off the air. Thank you for the call, Maria Conacoma.
1: Yeah, um, I think actually poker has been an incredibly liberating experience, which has made me much happier. Because in learning the difference and really learning the difference, because it's, it's just drummed into you between process and outcome, between the things that you control and the things you don't, you're able to let go of outcome in a way that I've never been able to quite do before. So you realize that All you can do is play the best game you possibly can, control what you can, control your decision process, control your thought process, control the information that you're using to base your decision and to act, control your emotions, control your reactions, control how you present yourself to other people. And then there are the cards that the dealer is going to pull off the deck and you can't control those. You can make the best decision possible. You can get your money in as an absolute favorite and lose chance can go against you. If I get my money in as a 75% favorite in a situation, be it up in poker or in life, I should be ecstatic. That's wonderful because most of the time I'm going to win, but 25% is a lot and it's going to happen and it's going to hurt, but that doesn't mean that I messed up. It doesn't mean I should blame myself. If my decision was sound, I should be able to let go of the outcome because if I keep putting myself in that position, if I keep putting myself in the position to Quote unquote, get lucky, then eventually I will. And that knowledge, that ability to just completely let go of outcome and realize that that's not within your control, it's very liberating. I think it helps you be a more positive person, a more emotionally resilient person who's able to bounce back from those moments where chance goes against you, where the variance is not on your side, because you know that that's going to happen. You're prepared for it. And you know how you're going to respond. You're going to respond by going back through your decision process, going back through how you acted and what you did and what you thought and how you presented yourself. And you're going to say, did I make the right decision? Did I do it well? And if the answer is yes, I'm happy. If the answer is no, Well, I'm not happy and I have something to work with. So I actually have something productive to be doing where I can execute my own agency as opposed to wallowing in the outcome, wallowing in the bad luck, which just basically puts bad energy out there and puts my emotions and my thoughts, which could be used towards something productive, towards something that's completely counterproductive and isn't going to accomplish anything.
0: Which brings up another thinker that you call our attention to in your book, Johann Rotter, who talks about internal and external, uh, I think the proper word would be loci or loci of control. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about that because it's really important not only in poker, but in life.
1: Yeah, Julian Rotter's work was something that was really um, important to me as I was a grad student in psychology. And he has a really important concept of locus of control. And he found that people have two main ways of looking at agency. So if you have an internal locus of control, then you think that you are responsible for events, that you control things, that you are actually being, you're the one who's calling the shots. If you have an external locus of control, then you see things as happening to you and you see the world as happening to you. You see it as just outside of your control, you see events as happening without your agency, without your involvement. And there's a time and a place for both loci. And there's a time where it's appropriate to have an external locus of control when something totally outside of your control happens. But what router found was that people have a way of describing events typically um, that, that really defines how they see the world. And an internal locus of control is usually much more useful. Um, it's something that helps you take agency, take control over things and, really, and accept responsibility. An external locus, on the other hand, often leads to depression because you start thinking, start being very nihilistic. You think, oh, you know, why bother? which I I shouldn't do anything.
0: (laughs) You know how uh, irreparable it can be to say, I just trust my gut and so forth. I mean, that can lead you down a bad path too.
1: Exactly, exactly. Um, So trusting your gut is not an internal locus of control. That's actually giving up control to your stomach, which is not something that I would ever recommend you do. Um, In fact, I think trusting your gut is the worst advice that anyone could possibly give you. We actually know a lot of work in psychology that shows that people have both very accurate Accurate intuitions and very inaccurate ones and we do not know which is which if we're asked to judge we're at about a coin flip so we have no way of knowing when our intuition is good or bad which means just disregard it and the only time when it's worth going with your gut is is when it's not your gut, when it's actually expertise, when you're someone who's a domain expert and you've spent thousands and thousands of hours doing this and studying this. And the reason it might feel like intuition, the reason it might feel like gut is because you've never externalized it, you've never vocalized it, you've never consciously thought to access the patterns that your brain recognizes. And that's the only time where you should be trusting your gut. Um, But in that case, it's not actually your gut, it's really your head.
0: Well, too often, uh, as you point out in your book, we think uh, that we're somehow in accord with uh, agency when really chance is ruling to a great degree. It's hard to grasp probabilities because we're not really wired for them. But that whole idea of skill and chance, which really, uh, in in so many ways, intrigued you and got you into this whole world. Um, Talk about the experiment that you ran at Columbia with the stock investments. I thought that was pretty fascinating.
1: Yeah, um, so when I was working on my dissertation with the late great psychologist Walter Michelle, we wanted to look at, so Walter Michelle is known as the marshmallow guy, he's the person who made the famous marshmallow studies, can a child wait for that second marshmallow, and the length of time that the child is able to wait actually predicts all sorts of positive life outcomes if, they, if they're if they able to wait a long time. Delay of gratification is incredibly important. The reason I'm saying this is because I went into this thinking that self-control, which is what Walter and Michelle had studied, was this wonderful thing. And I was curious to see if people who were high in self-control, who had a really good way of controlling their environment, controlling themselves, if they'd make better decisions in an environment like the stock market, an uncertain environment, um, an environment with risks where you had to make probabilistic judgments, where there was time pressure, where there was emotional pressure. And so I had them play stock market games where there were good stocks and bad stocks or bonds, which were safe options. And you had to figure out an investment allocation strategy and they were playing for real money. So it actually mattered um, how, how they were doing and What ended up happening, I I was curious to see who would do best, and I thought that the people who were high in self-control would do best, and we actually found that that wasn't the case. We found that really smart people, people who are really good at controlling things normally, ended up falling for something known as the illusion of control. So if you put them in a stochastic environment where there's a lot of uncertainty and a lot of different things going on, they all of a sudden think they have much more agency than they actually do, and they don't learn from negative feedback. They say, "Oh no, 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 that's just noise. It doesn't matter. I know what I'm doing," and they end up losing a lot of money. Whereas people who are unsure of themselves and who aren't quite sure what's going on, when they start losing money, they say, "Uh oh, I should probably change my strategy," and they do, and they learn, and they actually end up doing better. And I thought that that was absolutely fascinating. And then we started looking more at the illusion of control, and. It ends up that really intelligent people are so prone to this, are so prone to thinking that we remain in control, that things remain a matter of skill when it's really just pure chance, when there's no way that they were affecting the outcomes. And that's really eye-opening. That, I think, set up a lot of the thoughts that I had since then and probably was a precursor to my fascination with poker
0: i think it was definitely a harbinger for your poker life uh, i'm actually speaking about your poker life going to read a comment from bev who uh, says some things that sort of parallel what you said earlier she writes i'm a recreational poker player in local poker rooms and in las vegas i'm also a woman which puts me in the minority at every table i found that i can use that to my advantage in a number of ways including other players underestimating me and being unpredictable can your guests relate and i think the answer definitely from what we heard before from maria is yes Uh, But she also wants to know, can you draw any parallels to life and how being in the minority can still confer advantages if they are recognized and exploited?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I was able to, I think, become a much stronger female away from the poker table because of the experience that poker offered me, because I realized how often the situations that I could identify at the poker table must have been happening to me in real life, and I just never realized it. I never understood how often probably I was being bullied, how often I was being bluffed, how often people projected confidence to me when they weren't actually strong, that being confident and being strong, having a strong hand are two very, very different things. And so I was able to start spotting that and start being able to push against it. And so I think that I'm someone now who doesn't let myself be bullied nearly as much. Um, My husband noticed that about me when I started playing poker seriously. He said, you know, you don't take as much crap from people as you used to. Um, And I think that that's something that's a really hard earned skill and something that can really help you get further in life.
0: Well, we, um we only have a few minutes left here and i was going to ask you about something that uh, sort of been floating around my cranium uh, i remember when i was playing in a poker tournament once uh, uh i was i was having a lot of winning hands and then suddenly what they do sometimes uh, in these tournaments is they move the tables and they shift them around and i moved to another table and everything was very amicable and genial at the first table where i was winning hands and i moved to a table where it seemed to be with a lot of sour and i just wondered about the effect that the people you play with can actually have on you sometimes unconsciously uh i started losing hands at this other table and i wondered i didn't want to blame the other people necessarily but something about the vibe was different i know that sounds a little mystical and woo woo but mm-hmm. it can be it seems to me a real influence just like no uh, it's
1: it's not uh, mystical at all i think that the dynamics at the table are crucial and are crucial at how you do. Because just think about it for a second, if you're at a congenial table where people are nicer, then people are actually going to potentially play a little bit differently. First of all, they're enjoying themselves. Secondly, they probably in marginal spots where they could raise or they could not raise and everyone's happy and everyone's getting along and this isn't a very aggressive table, they might just call. They might take that less aggressive line. They might, you know, they might just do something like that because the dynamic is different. Now, if you're a table, at a table of what you called sourpusses, you know, if, if you're at a table of people who are out to get each other, um, then you're suddenly going to see more raising, more three-betting, more four-betting. It's going to be a much more aggressive environment. It's going to be more difficult to get to showdown and to actually win with the best hand because you're never going to get there. And so all of a sudden, you'll, you'll find yourself holding more. You'll find that entire experience very different. Um, and so I do think, I, do, I don't think that there's any mysticism there. I think you're exactly, you're absolutely right. And Can the there be mysticism The table though? affects how you play.
0: I'm sorry, I just wonder, can because we're running very short on time, can there be yeah. mysticism? I'm thinking about, you write about Dostoevsky's The Gambler. You know, there are moments where you think you're going to get a card. It's almost magical thinking, and it's a, it's a long shot, and the card comes.
1: No, absolutely not. <laughs> I am very, very against that. I have... One of the last chapters of the book is a screed against superstition. Um, I think that we have selective memory because 99.9 times when we think of a card, it does not come, but we don't remember that. We remember the one time where we had a good feeling and the feeling actually panned out. Um, So no, I'm very against all superstitions and I'm against any sort of mystical thinking. No, We're on the same
0: page there. And let (laughs) let me read a comment from Jean who writes many years ago, I was in a tea house in a small village in India, on an overland trip around the world i was young carrying an expensive camera and clearly had the means to travel and live well a friendly kindly gentleman started talking to me he asked where i came from how much education i had if my parents owned a home and a car then after quietly looking at me for a few moments he sighed smiled sweetly and said do you know how lucky you were to have been born in the united states a brief moment a few words in my perspective on the world and my place and it changed forever it's a good note to tend on really good to have you maria appreciate you being with us
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's
0: Maria Konnikova. Again, her book is called The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win. And uh, I'll say spasiba. Thank you to Maria and to you, our listeners, and those of you who joined us by phone or by email and uh, tweeting. Appreciate the hour for all of us. I'm Michael Krasny.